You're about to enter Nowhere, California. If you like what you hear, please search for us on iTunes. Uh, look at Nowhere, California, all one word. You can also find us on Facebook.com slash Nowhere, California. Please hit like. And as always, we are very hungry for your feedback. So if you have any requests or anything like that, please send your love, your hate, or your apathy to Nowhere underscore California at Yahoo.com. This is Josh, and welcome to another special Nowhere, California. As you can tell, well, Phil's not here, so you get to awkwardly hear me talk until we get to the important part of the episode. During the lifetime of Nowhere, California, I've mentioned several times, or several dozen times, my great admiration for a small film known as Grand Theft Parsons. Most recently, we did an episode of Why Not with that movie as the main focus of discussion. Towards the end of that episode, we did mention that there's a possible chance that we could do a surprise for the listeners, and here I am today because I will be talking to Jeremy Drysdale, the writer of Grand Theft Parsons, momentarily. Okay, we are on the line with Jeremy Drysdale, the writer of Grand Theft Parsons. Thank you so much for taking the time out to do this. I guess the best way to start is uh, asking you what led you into the world of writing.
just assume that that was you know how it was going to be. You know, you'd go and see people, you'd convince them that you're the right person to write their story, and then you'd get paid to do that, which is which is what happened. I got uh, disabused of that notion sometime later, but uh, that was my first job as a, a professional screenwriter. That's awesome. It always takes that first step, even if it's a uh, kind of a blind step. Well, I think you have to. I mean, I say I was naive, and I was hugely um, naive to think that I could just go and get it. But I think you need to have that innate stupidity when you're starting out. You just have to think that you are you're going to get that job. You're good enough to do that job well, and you know you deserve that job. And as long as you can back it up with a level of skill. Um, then, you know, it's, it's a good idea just to ignore the odds because the odds are not great in screenwriting. If you look at the number of people who make it uh, and the number of people who are trying to make it, it it's a, you know, it's, they're huge in the odds. And I think they can put you off. You just, you know, there are people who are making a good living as screenwriters and you just have to think uh, that you are good enough to be one of those people. And, of course, also, you have to be good enough to be one of those people, but uh, if you don't have the faith... Definitely. Um, you mentioned that you've been basically writing all your life. Uh, did you uh, fine-tune your craft in school at all, or did you just kind of uh, do trial by fire? No, uh, it was a trial by fire. Um, when I was... When I left school, I was doing uh, menial jobs, rubbish jobs, um, whatever I could do to earn some cash and I was on a train uh, into the London and I got talking to a guy, I was reading a boxing magazine and I got talking to a guy called Norman Reynolds who um, had seen that I was reading this magazine and he was interested uh, in boxing he ran a very small advertising agency um, that did uh, advertising for some of the promoters in London at that time and because we kind of got along in this conversation and, and uh, uh, we had certain things in common. He said to me, uh, you know, if, you, if you'd like a job, you can come and work for me. It wasn't a writing job, it was just, you know, the runner. I was just going around picking stuff up and dropping stuff off. But that got me into uh, advertising. Uh, and uh, from there, I gradually started moving into the writing side because that was what was available to me. I didn't have an eye for design so I was never going to be a designer uh, and then once you're along that path even though it's not one that you choose you know you kind of wander in that direction which is what happened that sounds awesome um, also in your uh, list of credits you have uh, some work on some short films such as The Other Side how did you land this job and what did you take from that experience um, well, I had never uh, I've never written a short movie before short film um, I Somebody got in touch with me, I can't remember if it was my agent or if it was a friend that said that there were these guys um, who had, uh, had a stab at, at writing a short film called The Other Side uh, and that they, they, it wasn't perhaps working quite as well as they'd hoped me. They were looking for somebody to help out really. Um, so I asked to have a look at the script, I looked at it, it was really good, what they felt was, was fine, it just needed uh, a little bit of work. Um, I didn't write it on my own, although I never met anybody connected with the, the project, so I just, uh, they sent me the script. I changed the structure of it a bit and, and changed it around, and they shot it, and, uh, and it, it was um, it was a hit film. I think it won some awards, and it, it, it got them a lot of uh, exposure, um, and 
Uh, you know, it would be unfair of me to say that I wrote the script. There were two other guys who, as I said, I didn't meet, who, uh, who did the first draft, and I, I took that on and changed it into something slightly different. Yeah, definitely. I did notice on the credits there was uh, several writers listed there. Um, I guess it's known in Hollywood as, I guess it's either uh, punching up a script or doctoring a script, but basically taking another another writer, going through it again. Uh, what are your thoughts on um, that uh, process in Hollywood where like, the production company may hand off a script to another writer just to see what can be flushed out? Well, as a, as a writer uh, of original projects, you, you don't like the idea that um, somebody else is going to be brought in. Uh, I have rewritten other people's work and I've polished other people's scripts and I've punched up other people's dialogue, so I kind of benefit from it as well. Um, I think it's probably fine. You know, and I think sometimes as a screenwriter, you're uh, worn out on a project. You, you know, you've, you've done three or four or five or six drafts on it, and then you get notes back, and you do the notes, and then you send it back, and you get more notes back, and you do those, and you send it back. You know, you're you're used to the project by that point. It's probably less than it should be, and if they, you know, keep banging back notes, <coughs> then it, it might be a good idea to step aside and let somebody fresh take another look at it. So I think it's fine. Awesome. Uh, also, on uh, your credits, you have some uh, video game work. How did you come across uh, these projects, and um, what can you tell us about those? Uh, well, I did. I did. Uh, I wrote uh, um, a thing called Battlefield Two: Modern Combat um, for Electronic Arts. Uh, I don't remember quite how that came about. I, I think. Uh, I was contacted and asked if I'd be willing to go along and talk to them about it, and I went along to Electronic Arts and had a meeting, and I didn't realise that they were seeing lots of writers on the project. Um, and uh, I don't think I said anything revelatory. I don't think I was particularly intelligent in the interview because I didn't really know too much about video games. I really hadn't played that many. Uh, but somehow I got the job, and it was... Um, it was fun, it's a different way of writing, uh, because it's non-linear, uh, which is kind of interesting. So you have to um, you have to create levels which work at, uh, regardless of which order they're played in. Uh, so structurally it's different, and anything that's different, uh, if it's writing, is good for you as a writer, it's, it's good education. Uh, I got paid pretty well for it as well. and. Um, it was uh, it was interesting working with you know in a room full of very creative people because generally I, I sit on my own uh, in a room uh, and have very little contact with anybody. So that was that was nice. That's awesome. Um, we might as well jump into what uh, kind of first connected us in the first place. You as the writer of Grand Theft Parsons and me being the fan I am of Grand Theft Parsons. How did you come across the story of Grand Parsons and Bill Kaufman? So I um, 
I tried to come up with something original uh, at that point, and I couldn't really come up with anything that was particularly uh, interesting. Um, and I kept this idea kept banging in my head. Um, I'd read in a magazine or a newspaper sometime earlier about this guy who was um, who was friendly with, with a rock star, and the rock star had died, and he, he because of a promise they'd made each other back in the day. He wanted to fulfill his promise and he stole the guy's body and he drove it into the desert to set fire to it at Joshua Tree. And uh, I sort of noodled about looking for this story. I couldn't find it for a while. And then eventually I tracked down uh, the details of, of what had happened. And it was even better than I remembered it being. It was perfect for a movie. And so I thought, well, I'll just ring up Phil Kaufman and uh, get the rights from him and then I'll write the film and sell it. Which is, of course, another example of just how naive and um, deluded one can be um, in an environment where one doesn't know the rules. And so I kind of did that. I mean, actually, it did work out that way, weirdly. I found his phone number uh, by ringing some people in LA, and they were connected in, in some way to the music business, and they got me a phone number for him, and I rang him up, and he was very unfriendly. And I explained to him that I was uh, this English guy and I was bringing from London and I, I wanted to make a movie of this thing. And I thought he would be hugely grateful to me that I was going to make a movie of this story. What I hadn't realised was that over the years since uh, this had happened, since he had uh, uh, burned Graham's body, uh, he had hundreds of, of film companies and producers and writers and directors wanting the rights to, to make the film and he turned them all down because I didn't know that and he thought he'd get rid of me I later discovered by saying I don't talk on the phone you'll have to come uh, and see me um, knowing that I was in London and he was in I think it was uh, Memphis um, at the time pretty sure it was Memphis um, it was one or the other um, and so he knew I wouldn't bother coming out to see him and I said okay that's fine uh, I'll do that he gave me his address and, and he put the phone down and he forgot about it and I booked a ticket to uh, Nashville I think it was and uh, I flew out and knocked on his door and he opened the door and there I was this guy he'd never met uh, and I kind of assumed that that was that you know I would get the rights and off we would go and he was very resistant to me having the rights he didn't know me at all my knowledge of Graham Parsons was pretty flaky and my knowledge of country music was very poor and still is actually so we had a a conversation and he said well you know I, I'm not sure really what I want to do with this um, and you know he kind of was very resistant and after about two hours I wasn't going anywhere I got up he kept making signals that probably we were done and I should move on and um, Eventually, he said, when is your flight? And I said, it's on Monday. And I was uh, I was there on Saturday morning. And he said, where are you staying? And I said, I'm not really staying anywhere. I haven't booked a, a room. I, I wanted to see how it would work out. And he was aghast that this bloke had turned up and flown in and was expecting to spend the weekend with him. Uh, so, you know, I reluctantly booked me a hotel room or he found me a hotel around the corner I think uh, and I said okay great I'll see you tomorrow morning then and I, over the course of the 
two days that I was in his company, uh, I think I just wore him down. I was so remorselessly uh, and uh, um, blindly uh, determined to get this uh, the rights to this story that he just he just gave up in the end and he said, "Okay, you know, uh, you can have them." And so I just flew back on the Monday, and he was as good as his word, and you know we, we hammered out a deal, and uh, that's that's how it started. That is awesome. Um, you know, that's something that I've never heard about before. Even as many times as I've watched the DVD and read about the movie online, that was an awesome story to hear. Um, in your, oh, sorry. Just, 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 I'm just going to say it's another example of how uh, you can, you know, you'll often, although I didn't, I didn't think of it in those terms then, but you'll often only get one shot at something, and you just shouldn't give up. You know, you just just keep going. It's, uh, and I did it out of stupidity, actually, uh, but regardless of your motivation, you know, it's no good failing to do something or get something because you haven't tried hard enough, and if you try too hard, well, big deal, you haven't hurt anybody, it's, it's always worth a shot. Definitely, that, this is becoming like a writing lesson right now, thank you very much for this. Um, in your research for the uh, script and everything, like you told us about uh, Phil's First resistance, but then acceptance of your writing of the script. Um, how much uh, help did you get from the other people that were uh, part of Graham's life and Phil's life? And did you get any help from the estate of uh, Graham Parsons? Well, I got a lot of help from Phil, obviously. He was terrifically helpful once he was on board. And he gave me some phone numbers of people who were friendly with Graham at the time, uh, his girlfriend at the time, uh, and various other people. Um, uh, and so um, it, it was it was pretty easy to get it from his perspective and it wasn't a documentary so I was always going to have to change some stuff around which was pretty handy <coughs> Gretchen who was uh, Phil's who was Graham's wife um, at the time of his death uh, she was uh, she was uh, um, she's around she's alive and I uh, I think she was pretty resistant to the idea of, of, of there being a movie about this, um, and you have a responsibility as a as a writer if you're writing about something that really happened, and there are people who are still alive. Uh, I think you, you need to be aware that, that this is somebody's life, um, and so you know you have to be kind of respectful. At the same time, you have to be respectful of the material. So you, you can't um, you can't betray the material by, by being nice to people who weren't nice uh, or telling things in a way that uh, is artificially designed <coughs> excuse me, to um, change the story. But what you can do is you can alter the structure of the thing to protect various people who are still walking about and, and who will be walking about for many years once this film is out. <coughs> so I had, to, um, I had to be a little bit careful. I was also aware that... Uh, Phil's daughter was alive, um, uh, and uh, um, Polly, I think her name was, um, and, you know, this was her father I was talking about, so although she wasn't in the movie, of course, you have to be true to somebody's memory as well, and, and not take too much liberty, though, mm. uh, times that, um, you know, I, I had to, uh, you know, I had to balance that line of being um, truthful, but without being a uh, uh, overly um, censorious of people or to interfere too much 
Yeah, you just mentioned about how some you had to uh, stretch some of the parts of the script. Uh, if I remember correctly, the Christina Applegate character and um, Graham's dad weren't really part of the uh, actual events. How did you come across uh, bringing those uh, concepts to the script? Yes. Uh, so we had to have uh, an antagonist um, who clearly wasn't uh, Gretchen because we, we, we needed to be careful that, that we weren't maligning Gretchen in any way. So she was fabricated for that reason. Um, and she absolutely was another person. And in fact, at one point, she even talks about Gretchen, so we are quite clear that they are different people. Um, and I think that was okay. The, the, the issue that we had was with the father. And I have to say, when the film came out, I got a massive kicking from the grandpires, as they call people who uh, are big fans of Grand Parsons and who have been waiting for a film uh, about his life uh, for decades. And so, of course, they were not very happy, first of all, that he was a movie that was about his death, effectively, uh, and that I had changed some of the, uh, the truths. Now, the father I put in, the Robert Forster character I put in because I wanted to have somebody who represented the audience. I, I'll, I'll posit a question to you. If you had a son, and uh, somebody, and he died, and somebody that was friendly with him turned up at the funeral parlor and stole your son's body and took it away somewhere and set fire to it, you would be pretty upset by that. And I was aware that uh, the audience, whilst perhaps being sympathetic to the idea that uh, Bill Kaufman had made a deal with Graham and was determined to fulfill the terms of that deal, the audience might feel that it was a step too far, that to, to steal this body and set fire to it wasn't something that was um, uh, kind to his mother or to uh, other members of his family. So I brought in a character, the father, um, who um, had to be persuaded by Phil Kaufman in the movie uh, that this was an appropriate way to behave. And I thought that if I could sell effectively on the screen, uh, Johnny Knoxville, Phil Kaufman, uh, if I could sell the idea that they were right to take the body and burn it, then, um, uh, then I'd, I'd won. Yeah, definitely. Um, like you said, uh, you kind of wanted to put the audience in the position of the father. Honestly, when I, I first watched uh, Grand, Grand Theft Parsons, I kind of watched it from Phil's point of view because, if I remember correctly, it was about the time of year it, uh, a friend of mine passed away in 2001. And it, when I first watched Grand Theft Parsons, it was about time for uh, the anniversary of his passing, and that kind of was the thing that really linked me into the movie that made me want to watch it as soon as I heard about it and then uh, the fandom and I guess the love of the movie I have grew from that. Okay. Yeah, so like I said, I kind of watched it from uh, Phil's point of view, but also too, like you said, I 
I understand what you're going with with the father because that's kind of a weird concept to have somebody coming out of nowhere taking your son's body going, we made this deal, I gotta go. Exactly right. And I knew that would be a problem with the audience. And so I had also to persuade my Shannon character uh, that it was, uh, that what they were doing was right. So, you know, there was a lot of conflict there and there were a lot of obstacles for him to overcome if he was gonna, uh, if he was gonna come out at the end of the movie uh, looking like a decent human being. He, he definitely did. At least in my point of view. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess, kind of just a quick random question. Um, like you just mentioned, Michael Shannon uh, played Hippie. How did you uh, react when you saw him playing Zod in uh, Man of Steel? And this is totally just a random question. <laughs> on that the entire cast and crew were awesome in this I I can't say it enough about that movie well thank you it's a divisive movie um, you know a lot of people don't like it at all uh, the, um, the the grand buyers don't like it uh, there are you know on IMDB it's got a, a you know it's kind of a three star rating I think it's got a 60% like rate you know which isn't high but then a lot of people have given it five stars and a lot of people have given it one star. So we have a, we have a saying over here, which is that it's a Marmite film. You know, people either love it or hate it. Um, and even if you look at the reviews, you know, we had a lot of fantastic reviews uh, when the film came out. Um, and, you know, uh, equally, um, at the press screening, one of the first press screenings in London, <coughs> the reviewers... Um, name I can't remember, but uh, I did remember it for many years, one of the reviewers halfway through the film stood up and started shouting at the screen because he felt that the film was um, uh, dishonoring Graham Parsons' life, and you know, for five minutes he just raged at the screen, and then he turned around and stormed out, um, and I think that was our biggest screening, I think we had the, uh, we had the Times and we had the Telegraph and we had the Daily Mail there that day, so it was a really bad time for this guy to suddenly go batshit um, uh, about the movie and didn't help as much. It's one of those films I think that people either really really like or they really really don't. That that is very true. Um, with uh, some movie productions, the writers are a hundred percent involved in the production, or they're just involved with their script writing. For Grand Theft Parsons. How much were you part of the production? Were you there on set? Were you able to help if any kind of issue came up with the script or with the ideas of the story? No, not at all, really. I was, um, I wrote the script and then I brought the producer uh, and uh, uh, on board uh, and then I interviewed the director and brought him on board um, and the two of them then kind of phrased me out of the process uh, to the extent that I still, I think, 
Yeah, I think it was either 21 or 24. Okay, uh, yeah, that's kind of a weird thing when you hear about that when, like, productions do that to writers because, to me, that's, the writer is the guy that is initially bringing, in, bringing the world alive, and they should be allowed to at least be welcomed on set. <laughs> Definitely, I, I do agree with you on that one. Um, I guess to wrap up the Grand uh, Threat Parsons part of this, um, from the time that you sat down and wrote the script to when you first saw the, uh, I guess, initial cut of it, were you happy with the finished product? Uh, you kind of uh, delved in that already, but I guess go if you want to go a little bit more on that. Scene that people talk to me about the most is the one where 
Shannon drives the hearse into the side of the, the, the aircraft hangar. Uh, perhaps, you know, there are little things that I would like to change, but I think there always are going to be um, for the writer because he sees the film in his head, he or she sees the film in their head um, uh, when they finish writing it. And it's never going to look like that once it's gone through the hands of a director and a crew and actors who don't look exactly as you pictured them in your mind and so on and so forth. So, you know, I'm pretty happy with it. You know, it's, it's, I think it's a, it's known as a cult film, which can be good, can be bad. It can just mean a film that nobody really ever gets to see. But I think it's shown in the States fairly regularly and I think it's got a, a following and, you know, people seem to feel quite warm towards it. So that's, uh, that's a good sign. I definitely agree with that. Like I've told you before, when it comes to this movie, I, if it comes up in conversations and I get that usual, what movie are you talking about look, I usually go, okay, when's the next time we're going to see you? And then the next time I see that person, I usually have my copy of Grand Theft Parsons in hand going, watch it, you'll understand. <laughs> I'm great. Well, I'm very grateful. Thank you. I'm at the man. Yeah. You got somebody in the middle of nowhere in California, so... <laughs> Um, I guess to finish things up, uh, how about you, uh, if you want to tell the listeners where they can find you online, any upcoming projects you have coming up, anything you, basically this is the plug portion. <laughs> well, I can't talk about too much as far as the plug is concerned. Uh, I've, uh, I've just sold a, uh, a script called The Risk Initiative, it's called The Drop at the moment, um, but uh, after we called it The Drop and after it got uh, sold. Uh, we discovered that there was a Tom Hardy film called The Drop, um, which is due out pretty soon. So it will change its name, maybe to 20, for reasons I won't bore you with. Uh, but that's a real-time action thriller set in Los Angeles. So um, I've always wanted to write a real-time movie. Um, so our, our 100 minutes on the screen is 100 minutes of, uh, of real life. Um, and uh, um, that's... Uh, being set up now that it's been sold I'm hoping that we should um, earlier in, in the year on that um, or towards the end of this year possibly um, there are two other projects that I'm, uh, I'm working on well, one is called Blank uh, and one has a working title um, which actually I think I won't mention because it, it's uh, it's based on uh, a series of books so sounds good that, but well, I'm hoping so. They're action movies. They're the a blank is a, uh, a high concept action film. Um, the other film is the start of a franchise, hopefully. Um, and then I'm just halfway through now. Um, I'm halfway through a script called Wheel Creek, which uh, is another high concept movie, um, which is also set in California, um, which I'm pretty pleased with thus far. Although we'll see how it works when it's done. It's really difficult to know if I'm going to be able to make it work. Um, the trick with these high concept films is to actually make them look as if they're absolutely realistic and, and that sort of thing could just happen anywhere uh, but you don't really know if you've got away with it until you're done um, and I'm hoping to have my first novel out uh, next year as well um, which I've uh, co-written um, and which is a, a young adult novel um, so you know it's been a busy time if people want to get in touch with me, uh, I do have a Facebook page. Just, uh, I would call it a fan page because that sounds a little bit as if I'm uh, very fond of myself. But it, it's a, a page about films, which is called Jeremy Drysdale Writes. Um, people are more than welcome to follow that. I post every day. I post film stuff on there. Um, and my Twitter uh, 
handle is at Jeremy Drysdale, and uh, again, that's primarily movie uh, related stuff. That's awesome. Um, before we get to our usual final question, I just got to thank you once again, Jeremy, for coming on, talking with us, and like I've said before, I'm a big fan of Grand Theft Parsons, and when I first started this podcast, I knew I wanted to eventually talk to like the filmmakers and the creators and writers of stuff that I love, and this is the first time I'm being able to do this, so from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much, man. That's my pleasure, Joshua. It's been great speaking to you. Cool. And I guess now it's time for our trademark uh, final question. We've asked this to a lot of people, and we're going to pose it to you. Uh, Jeremy, what is your favorite what-the-fuck movie moment? My favorite what-the-fuck movie moment is uh, probably my favorite film of all time, and absolutely my favorite uh, commercial script of all time. Uh, the film is Seven, uh, and my what-the-fuck moment is the... Uh, the opening of the box at the end of the film. Nice. 